Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Benjamin Young about his book titled Guns, Gorillas and the Great Leader, North Korea and the Third World, published by Stanford University Press in 2022. Um, In the book, Dr. Young tells the story of North Korea's transformation in the Third World, um, how it relates to this group of countries throughout the time of the Cold War, um, that really takes us, helps us understand kind of how North Korea um, dealt diplomatically, militarily, economically with a whole range of countries. So it's a really interesting book. Um, and I'm very excited, therefore, to welcome you, Ben, to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Miranda. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write the book? Sure. So um, I'm currently an assistant professor of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness at Virginia Commonwealth University, uh, better known as VCU. Uh, And I received my PhD uh, in 2018 from George Washington University. Uh, It was, uh, this is This topic was actually my PhD dissertation. Uh, After I completed my PhD studies at GW, I spent a year as a postdoc at the U.S. Naval War College, and then then I spent two years uh, at a small public university in South Dakota, uh, and I've been at VCU since the fall of 2021. Um, So why I chose this topic uh, really has to do with my own Um, kind of interest in North Korea. I actually, I visited North Korea in 2012. It was actually one of my uh, first trips abroad when I was fresh out of undergrad. And I visited a a tower in North Korea known as the Juche Tower. This is in the capital city of Pyongyang. And at the base of this tower, a bunch of plaques dedicated to the North Korean leadership from friendship societies around the world. These friendship societies are kind of like these uh, these kind of civic associations and groups. Um, sometimes these groups are only like one or two people, uh, but they basically uh, kind of devote themselves to studying North Korean ideology. Uh, and quite a few of these plaques came from uh, developing countries. And I thought this was a, this was quite, interesting. This was, I didn't really know about this history. So when I uh, got back to the United States, I started researching more about this peculiar aspect of the Cold War in terms of third worldism and the ways in which developing countries unified around concepts of solidarity and revolutionary socialism and why they came to support each other. Very interesting. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense of kind of that would be something um, to think, look at and go, hang on a second, I'm in this place with this monument. What is this thing they're talking about and investigating it? Um, and the book does this so clearly to understand and map out what was actually happening. So I'd love to kind of do a bit of a highlights tour of the book, obviously not in as much detail as you've managed to write, um, but we should be able to give a bit of a taste of it. And so the obvious place to kind of start is where did North Korea's interest in the third world come from? 
Yeah. So, um, also, I, I forgot to put in the first part about my background is I actually my master's thesis was on the Black Panther Party's relations with North Korea. Uh, so that was kind of almost my first kind of look at the concept of third worldism, uh, the relationship the unique relationship between this black radical organization in the U.S. Uh, that formed this very close relationship uh, with this regime across the Pacific. Um, and so that's when I, so from looking at Black Panther Party newspaper articles and North Korean state run media articles, I started to really uh, get interested in North Korean internationalism and the fact that in North Korea, uh, in the mainstream media, whatever you want to call it, typically gets labels as uh, the hermit kingdom, as secretive, as isolationist, reclusive, hermetic, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But what I found is that North Korea has always been very uh, internationalist. It has been always quite globally active, just not in the international liberal order that the U.S. is part of. Uh, North Korea has had diplomatic uh, relations with a number of African, Latin American, uh, and Southern Asian countries for a long period of time. So North Korean diplomats and officials going abroad is nothing new. Um, Kim Il-sung went on trips all around the world, actually. And so uh, this aspect of North Korean history has just not been touched upon by many historians or political scientists. And so North Korea's interest in the third world, uh, as I talk about in my book, it really comes from North Korea's own unique historical circumstances. The fact that North Korea was once a former colony itself. North Korea was uh, obviously it used to be one. It used to be one Korea uh, and it was colonized by Japan from 1910 to 1945. And uh, Korea was then divided by the Soviets and the Americans in 1945 after the collapse of the Japanese Empire. And North Korea, it prided itself on being the more anti-colonial nationalist regime. And it was led by a former guerrilla fighter, Kim Il-sung. Kim Il-sung, uh, he understood what it was like to be an anti-colonial movement. He, I think he had sympathies for national liberation movements later on. And so this is why I think really formed North Korea's third world solidarity approach is the fact that many of the leaders in the North Korean uh, political elite not just Kim Il-sung, but some of his close aides were former anti-colonial guerrillas that had fought the Japanese. So they understood the hardships, sacrifices, and struggles that were uh, inherently part of national liberation movements. And during the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, decolonization was happening all around the third world. And I use the term third world not as some sort of uh, you know, negative pejorative, but this was actually a term that was used as a term of empowerment. It was used positively by countries like North Korea, but also by organizations like the Black Panther Party and even African uh, decolonization movements. It's only in the post-Cold War period where the term third world gets used as uh, a pejorative. Uh, now the preferred term is global south, but honestly, I hate that term because a country like North Korea, you don't think of it as the south, uh, but it still is very actively part of this global south non-aligned uh, kind of international uh, zone.
that makes sense and i'm glad you've um clarified sort of the use of the term third world um i've always encountered it in my research um as being a way of differentiating during the cold war between the first world of kind of the west the second world of the soviet union and its allies and the third world being kind of what was up for grabs in terms of um political allegiance so um it is useful to remember that it in the cold war it does have a different meaning than we might find today Exactly. You bring up a good point, Marana, because it was the first world was the U.S. liberal capitalist order. The second world was the Soviet-led socialist order. And the third world was really kind of up for debate. It was going to be a third way of development, something that was going to be different from the two global hegemons. It wasn't going to be worse than the Soviet American uh, systems of development and models of development. It was going to be uh, kind of a more indigenous uh, uh, radical orientation to a political, social, and cultural development. So we'll get into, I'm sure, um, kind of how North Korea related to countries, other countries within the third world. But I, I was really interested um, in your book that you also talked about how engagement with the third world um, enhanced Kim Il-sung and his regime's domestic legitimacy um, as well as obviously foreign relations. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about this domestic legitimacy side. Yeah, so one of the reasons why uh, Kim Il-sung's regime was so active in the third world during the Cold War era was it really bolstered his own internal legitimacy. What I mean by that is that these images of Kim Il-sung going abroad, visiting these national leaders, these uh, foreign dignitaries coming to Pyongyang to meet with Kim Il-sung, This bolstered the uh, domestic image of Kim Il-sung as not only a Korean uh, leader, but also as a worldwide revolutionary leader. And this image of dignitaries and foreign guests coming to see Kim Il-sung, a lot of these gifts that were given to Kim Il-sung are actually at uh, the International Friendship Exhibition in North Korea. This is a museum that basically has thousands and thousands and thousands of gifts given to the North Korean leadership uh, from foreign leaders and dignitaries abroad. And this is supposed to represent the North Korean leadership as not these isolated pariahs, but actually as these world revolutionary figures. And so during the Cold War era, Kim Il-sung was actually looked upon quite positively by a number of third world leaders. Uh, For example, Idi Amin, the Ugandan leader, really admired North Korea's style of uh, mass gymnastics known as the mass games. Robert Mugabe, the leader of Zimbabwe, the um, who was in the 1980s and 1970s, this anti-imperialist guerrilla fighter, he really celebrated North Korea's regimented uh, society and his emphasis on collective discipline. In the 1980s, one of his first visits was to North Korea. And one of his aides came, said that when Mugabe came back from his visit uh, to North Korea, he was almost a different man. 
Uh, and you see that a lot with these foreign leaders visiting North Korea, is that they almost come back to their uh, home countries. Uh, they have this almost, they almost want to model their own societies on the North Korean one. What I actually take this to mean is that they they really saw uh, totalitarianism perfected in North Korea. Uh, the most famous example, which I actually don't cover much in the book, is Romanian dictator Nikolai Ceausescu. He visited North Korea, and that's really when he changed in into this um, into this uh, basically tyrannical despot, where he became very obsessed with his own personality cult. Obviously, this culminated as in his assassination uh, in front and on on national TV, but. A lot of scholars of uh, socialist Romania actually point to Ceausescu's visit to, D- to the DPRK as a turning point in his own mentality and personality. And so a lot of these foreign leaders, they went to North Korea and they saw this model of development where it was authoritarianism was perfected, but it wasn't authoritarianism of a hegemonic state, of a large uh, state like the Soviet Union, this was authoritarianism with a anti-colonial revolutionary bent to it. Mm, I can see how there would be a lot for, um, especially Idi Amin, Mugabe, etc., to learn from um, on multiple levels, militarily, socially, economically, etc. But I wanted to ask about kind of the reverse of that, because you also talk about in the book, not just other leaders learning from North Korea, but also North Korea uh, sometimes learning from other countries. And I was wondering if you could tell us about um, what did the DPRK gain or learn from its relationship with Sukarno in Indonesia? Yeah, so uh, one of the, I, in my first chapter, I focus kind of on three different case studies, North Korea's uh, relations uh, with Cuba, Indonesia, and Vietnam. And the relationship with Indonesia is interesting because uh, Kim Il-sung had a very close relationship with Sukarno right before he was overthrown. And North Korea gained something from the overthrow of Sukarno. And they learned that you cannot share power with other faction. Sukarno famously shared uh, political power with a re- with a religious faction and was uh, more of a political pluralist than Kim Il-sung. But when Kim Il-sung saw his buddy Sukarno get overthrown, he understood that, you know, you need to rule with an iron fist. You cannot let... Uh, any pluralism within your society. And that's what North Korea uh, gained from aiding third world governments is that they all, this was never something that was done purely out of solidarity. It was definitely an aspect, but for example, North Korea aided the Vietnamese communists during the Vietnam War, and they sent their air pilots to help Ho Chi Minh's forces. What did the North Koreans gain out of this? Well, they gained a battle, battle, real battle experience, potentially for a conflict in the Korean Peninsula. Um, North Korea, they sent some of their advisors and specialists to Africa. This is all to gain on-the-ground knowledge for a potential conflict back on the, in their homelands. So North Korea always gained something uh, from their relations, whether it was diplomatic recognition, whether that was 
uh, kind of a boost in the cultural status and prestige of the DPRK or military experience. North Korea did not uh, do these things with third countries out of the kindness of their hearts. Yes, third world solidarity was definitely part of it, but it's not as if North Korea uh, was this benevolent kind regime. What really has changed, though, in the since the late 1980s, early 1990s, is that North Korea is still active in the third world, but they purely do this out of a need for hard currency, the desire for foreign currency, the fact that North Korea is a heavily sanctioned regime. They need anything that they can get their hands on. And one of the best places to do this is in uh, Africa. So North Korean art studios, Mansude, and also a smaller art studio named as Peko are still active in uh, Africa, uh, building statues, memorials, monuments, museums. And so that has been one of the big shifts in terms of North Korea's relationship with the developing world. It has shifted from, uh, from basically needing diplomatic recognition, needing this boost in the uh, Kim Il-sung status to now being needing a boost in the foreign currency reserves of the Korean Workers' Party coffers. Hmm. Thank you for explaining um, that shift and kind of how that's changed. Something else um, about change I wanted to ask you about the book is um, part of the way through the Cold War, um, North Korea introduces the monolithic ideological system I'm wondering if you can um, introduce that to us a little bit and explain how it impacted North Korea's third world relations. Yeah, so I in my book, I really try to blend um, North Korea's internal and external affairs. And in terms of North Korean ideology, there has been a very large focus on Juche, the North Korean ideology of self-reliance. And while it is important, what I also think is important is the implementation of the monolithic ideological system in 1967. Basically, this system codified that the personality cult of the Kim family. In North Korea, the rule of the land was not based on any any sort of constitutional democracy or any sort of political pluralism. It was going to be built on the ideology and revolutionary traditions of the Kim family, chiefly Kim Il-sung. So the monolithic ideological system said that Kim Il-sung is the center point of our ideology. It does not uh, revolve around Mao, Mao Zedong thought or Stalin's or Stalinism or anything from foreign lands. This the monolithic ideological system said the end all and be all of our ideology is Kim Il Sung and the Kim family, and this impacted the DPRK's third world policies. Because this basically meant that foreign diplomats and officials abroad needed to basically disseminate uh, propaganda that propagated Kim Il-sung as a worldwide revolutionary leader. So I have a section in my book that talks about North Koreans wasting 
tons of money on placing propaganda in local third world newspapers. So you have North Korean ads in uh, Nigerian newspapers, uh, newspapers in Madagascar. Even the North Koreans even put uh, full page ads in the Boston Globe and the New York Times. If you actually look through the New York Times archives in the 1980s, you will see North Korean propaganda that is basically they were paid for uh, by North Korea's uh, sister association in Japan uh, known as Chungram, which are basically pro-DPRK ethnic Koreans living in Japan. And basically Pyongyang paid the Chungram to put these ads in the New York Times uh, and in other Western newspapers to basically kind of hammer home the point that Kim Il-sung was this worldwide beloved figure, and then North Korean newspapers back at home, such as Rodong Shinmun, which is the main newspaper in North Korea, they said, oh, look at how our beloved leader is, is even celebrated in the uh, hostile imperialist capital of you know, Washington, D.C. or New York City. Obviously, that's not the case, but the average North Korean farmer likely just takes it, oh, he really is like celebrated by the American uh, you know, proletariat. He is this world-renowned revolutionary leader and figure. Uh, so this monolithic ideological system had a huge impact on North Korea's diplomacy because it made North Korean diplomats and officials abroad, not just diplomats and officials, but propagandists. And in a system like North Korea, there's no dissent. You don't talk back uh, in a system like this. And especially you don't talk back if someone tells you to put an ad of your godlike leader in a foreign newspaper, you better do it because the consequences are going to be severe, not only for yourself, but also potentially for your family. And how did other countries, um, not necessarily in the third world, for example, South Korea, react to North Korea spending so much time and effort and energy um, kind of making its case, particularly in the third world? Yes. So North Korea's third world policies, what, what was always in the background of this was the competition with South Korea. And North and South Korea had their own version of the Halstein Doctrine. The Halstein Doctrine uh, is this famous doctrine that was uh, basically that East Germany and West Germany shared, that if a foreign government were recognized East Germany, for example, that West Germany would not recognize that country. North and South Korea had something similar. So let's say Guinea, the African country of Guinea, recognized North Korea. South Korea would not uh, formalize diplomatic relations with that uh, with Guinea. And North, South Korea responded with North Korea's third world policies uh, very um, re- reactively. For example, North and South Korea were basically going on island hopping uh, campaigns in the South Pacific. In my book, I touch on the very uh, unique circumstances in which North Korean diplomats were going all over the South Pacific from the Solomon Islands to uh, Tuvalu to even the tiny microstate of Nauru, which has about 10 to 10,000 people. Uh, North Korea was sending its diplomats to these tiny countries because it wanted diplomatic recognition, because diplomatic recognition would increase your status and prestige at international forums like the UN. So South Korean diplomats, they basically had a guy... Uh, 
basically flying wherever the North Koreans went in the South Pacific. The same happened in the Caribbean and in Latin America. So North and South Korea were always in this very strange uh, diplomatic uh, competition to see who could um, gain the most diplomatic uh, recognition. And up until the mid-1970s, North Korea, in terms of economic output uh, and indicators of industrial output, was ahead of South Korea. North Korea's industrialization, its rapid development program after the Korean War, that really appealed to a lot of newly independent countries that had just overcome decades of colonialism and brutal imperialistic economic policies. And so the reason why North Korea might have appealed to some of these regimes during the 1960s to 70s and 80s isn't as outlandish as it seems today, right? South Korea is this bustling economic powerhouse. It's something like the 12th or 13th strongest economy in the world. Meanwhile, North Korea, 40% of its population is malnourished. Uh, and North Koreans, if you stand them side by side with South Koreans today, they are smaller in stature, they are thinner, uh, they are just not as strong as South Koreans, and that has to do with their diets. But back during the 1960s and 70s, that was not the case. Uh, South Korea's rapid economic development, uh, I think, is tends to be overlooked. It really is tremendous just how quickly Nor- uh, South Korea has transformed economically and how much North Korea has stagnated economically. And of course, one of the big causes of that, um, amongst many others, but is relevant to your book is you do primarily talk about the Cold War. And we've mostly been talking about the Cold War, um, but obviously a lot of things change in the world um, when the Cold War ends. Um, but also there's a pretty significant change in North Korea with um, the death of Kim Il-sung followed by, and then his son taking over Kim Jong-il. Um, or is there? To what extent did Kim Jong-il change North Korea's policies towards the third world? Yes. So North Korea is unique amongst communist states because it was the first communist state to have hereditary secession. The fact that the leadership went from father to his son. This is basically heresy, according to orthodox Marxist theory. Uh, But North Korea has never been a typical Eastern Bloc communist state. You know, this was not Bulgaria or East Germany. And Kim Jong-il was also different from his father because Kim Jong-il was raised in this very luxurious palace lifestyle. His father was a guerrilla fighter raised in rough and tumble Manchuria. So Kim Jong-il, he treated third world states as basically a space to carry out his own political hostilities. For example, in 1983, North Korean agents tried to assassinate the South Korean president in Rangoon, the capital city of Burma. North Korean agents failed. Uh, The North Koreans killed a number of South Korean officials and security guards. It was this basically a fiasco for North Korea's diplomatic image. Uh, A number of third world countries actually cut relations with the DPRK as a result of that incident. It was that incident was likely orchestrated by Kim Jong-il. And I think that is a good way to tell you about how Kim Jong-il viewed the third world. He viewed it as a space to carry out revolutionary violence, not as a space to carry out revolutionary solidarity like his father. Kim Jong-il He saw uh, basically uh, third world countries as a way 
to either gain hard currency or to try to assassinate uh, f- uh, South Korean leaders uh, and officials. And then this is actually cut, carried over to Kim Jong-un today. Kim Jong-un, where did he kill his half-brother Kim Jong-nam? That was in the Malaysian International Airport. And he used one. Of, he used the VX nerve agent, which is a WMD-grade nerve agent. Uh, v- VX is extremely toxic uh, in a is extremely uh, dangerous. And the fact that they use this in an international airport tells you just about how much of a renegade state North Korea still is. Um, North Korea, they have also carried out numerous cyber attacks on central uh, financial institutions in the developing world, the most famous of which was a hack of the Central Bank of Bangladesh about five or so years ago. Uh, This hack cost the Central Bank of Bangladesh somewhere close to $81 million. Uh, Why did the North Koreans target the Central Bank of Bangladesh? Well, they were looking for a country that had relatively lax security, cybersecurity uh, initiatives. And the Central Bank of Bangladesh was something that was specifically targeted by North Korean hackers. So you could say that Kim Jong-il Kim Jong-il's renegade policy towards the third world has been carried uh, over to his son, Kim Jong-un. Hmm, very interesting um, and definitely helps kind of bring the book um, and its discussions very clearly all the way up to the present. Um, although the Cold War is not uh, currently in effect, the idea there's clear continuities to see um, in the book and in the answers you've given us, which is really helpful. Um, but I was wondering if there's anything kind of in terms of the actual writing of the book, uh, you obviously spent quite a long time on this and there's a lot of content to cover. Um, but I'm wondering if there was anything you came across at any point that you found surprising. Yes. So, um, you know, in my book, I have numerous anecdotes about North Korean internationalism. A lot of them are um, little tidbits that I found during my archival research around the world. And um, one of the most interesting tidbits that I found is that North Korea sent mass games instructors all around the world. A North Korean book in 2012 said that they had sent instructors to 48 different countries, and many of these were in Africa. And so North Korean mass games instructors, they were sent to countries like Nigeria and Togo and Uganda and Zimbabwe. And this, I think, is fascinating because you really have a clash of two different cultures and civilizations. You had this North Korean brand of collectivism uh, that was persona that was basically symbolized in the mass games and it was brought to countries uh, like Zambia, Somalia, uh, Togo, Nigeria. And in my book I have some funny kind of quirky examples of North Koreans trying to get uh, locals uh, in African countries to adopt their mass games aesthetics. Uh, So Idi Amin, he really admired North Korean style mass games. 
he, uh, quite a few of his advisors and some of the more local officials said, why are you promoting this communist activity? He said, no, no, this is good for our, our mass mobilization. Like, you'll love it. It's wonderful. Uh, Idi Amin actually learned about North Korean style mass games from Somalia, uh, where the Bahre regime Actually, they were the first to adopt North Korean style mass games. And basically, Idi Amin then got letters uh, from other African leaders that said, oh, we want to we want the North Koreans to come over to our country and help us uh, learn how to do this mass games. And so you have this proliferation of North Korean style mass games all over the developing world. And it wasn't just Africa, even though that's where it chiefly happened. There's also North Korean style mass games in Guyana, for example. Um and so you had these little like North Korean cultural footprints in these uh, in these developing African states. And even if you look at the Zimbabwe primary school curriculum today, uh, they actually still have a section devoted to the mass games in their phys ed uh, classes. And so that's almost kind of a legacy of North Korean internationalism. And North Korea that still has a footprint in a large part of the third world. For example, in the capital city of Maputo in Mozambique, there is a Kim Il-sung Avenue that crossroads with Mao Zedong Avenue. And actually uh, on this avenue is the U.S. Cultural Center, which is a real weird mishmash of Cold War cultures and hostilities. In addition, say again? but also an entertaining mishmash in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I just, I, I, I found these kind of uh, anecdotes really interesting because um, I didn't really want my book just to be this very boring, you know, North Korea established relations with Guinea in 1958. There was these diplomatic exchanges. I think diplomatic history written in that style can be extremely boring uh, and not interesting. Um and I think that my book, I try to not only carry, I try to have interesting anecdotes that connect with this larger theme and historical context. Uh, and one last kind of section that I'll talk about from my book that I thought was interesting is in Uganda, um, basically, uh, there was the these British mercenaries that were helping to keep uh uh, I believe it was Idi Amin, or it was actually Museveni's regime afloat. Uh, and Museveni said, all right, like I want to get someone that's a country that's cheaper, that's more affordable. And so they brought in North Korean security guards to help uh, the Ugandan uh, armed forces. And you actually have North Korea gaining interesting niches around the world. So North Korea, they're really good at the mass games. There were also North Korean security forces uh, got a good reputation abroad for being very disciplined. For example, uh, Prince Sihanouk of Cambodia 
He didn't have Cambodian uh, security guards. He actually had North Korean security guards. Um, North Korea also had a reputation abroad for building palaces. So you had North Koreans building palaces in places like um, the Central African Republic, for instance. So North Koreans, they were they had these very interesting niches and reputations that they gained during the Cold War era. Fascinating. Um, and as you said um, earlier on, some of those are still um, ongoing with the art um, studios, for example, and a number of these other aspects. Um, so absolutely fascinating. And thank you for sharing those. I think the anecdotes in the book really do um, not just make it interesting rather than boring, but also really help ex- understand what this actually means to establish diplomatic relationships. Okay, well, what does that actually lead to? What kind of impact does that have? And the anecdotes do a really good job of kind of making that real for readers. Um, But I do, before I let you go, I do want to ask, uh, the book is now out. You've obviously been working on it for quite a long time. Uh, But as researchers, we tend to always have something kind of coming up next. So I'm wondering, what are you working on now that the book is done? Yes. So uh, that's a good question. So I've actually been working, uh, I just... Um, I've been working on an article uh, that looked at the uh, globalization of Mao's concept of people's war. So it's actually kind of a blending of military history and environmental history. Uh, And it's also not North Korea focused. So I kind of wanted a little bit of a break from uh, North Korean studies. And so I was looking at this aspect of global Maoism. And global Maoism is a topic that has received a lot of uh, interest lately from historians and political scientists. The uh, most famous recent book being Julia uh, Lovell's book called Global Maoism, but there's also been some other work recently done on global Maoism by people like uh, Matthew Galway. And so, but uh, in my uh, article that I just finished, I look at the concept of people's war. This was Mao's theory of guerrilla warfare and how people's war, uh, what was unique about it was his closeness to mountains. And the fact that people's war really took guerrilla warfare strategy to the mountain sides and how Mao's concept of people's war was not just this uh, was not just this kind of Marxist revolutionary theory, but one that actually had this real uh, closeness to the natural terrain. And that natural terrain ideally was uh, the mountains. Because mountains provided a way for gorillas to hide themselves. Uh, it was also provided uh, cover from ambush. And so Mao's People's War was then proliferated around the world. For example, Shining Path in Peru, uh, they were Maoists and they adopted Mao-style People's War. Uh, the F- Filipino communists, the New People's Army, they adopted uh this people's army. Uh, And I also have a small section in my article that talks about the Korean uh, war and how guerrilla warfare strategy was uh, unleashed during the, in the Korean mountains against the U S forces. So I look at uh, kind of the military history and science of people's war. 
Fascinating. Um, well, if you end up writing a book on that, um, hopefully you can come back and share it with us then. Um, but in the meantime, while you are off researching that, uh, listeners can read the book we've been primarily talking about titled Guns, Gorillas and the Great Leader, North Korea and the Third World, published by Stanford University Press in 2022. Dr. Benjamin Young, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Miranda. I really appreciate it.